Welcome to the Contraception Pod. I'm Maya and I'm the Catholic. I'm Cassidy and I'm the Protestant. At a gala at Trump Hotel, never meeting each other prior, Cassidy quietly came up to me in the bathroom and said, What are your thoughts on contraception? This question turned into a never-ending discussion that we decided to take on a podcast. So join us as we discuss contraception and how it affects our world. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Contraception Pod. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the history of contraception in the last hundred years. We're going to be hearing a lot from Cassidy about what she knows on this topic, and especially in regards to, you know, the Protestants and the Catholics and how their history has, how, how our history in the last hundred years has been affected by birth control and our beliefs in that. So just jumping right in, though, we want to go over each form of contraception. I know that we ended last pod with that question to Cassidy of like, well, are you against every form of contraception? But I think the first thing we have to answer there is, okay, what forms of contraception are we talking about? And uh, in this podcast, and I would just, you know, preface that by saying we will be addressing all forms of contraception. But Cassidy, what types of contraception are there? Can you go over each form of contraception briefly for us? That's a great question, Maya. So one form of contraception is the IUD. So that's an acronym for interuterine device. So that is a device that is put inside the uterus by a healthcare provider, nurse practitioner, or physician. Um, It is set there with the goal to prevent, uh, they say to prevent pregnancy, but a large part of the IUD is to prevent implantation. It is irritating to uterine lining. Some IUDs release hormones. Others are I think some do not as well. Some of the early forms like the Dalton shield, which we'll talk about at some point, cause it was a very dangerous IUD. Um, I don't believe that released any hormones, but just made it inhospitable for life. So there were less pregnancies with the Dalton shield in particular, but it was not a very effective form of contraception. It kind of a reminder how, as these forms of contraception have been created and produced, it hasn't been done in a pro-woman way typically. Um, actually, the creator of the first IUD, um, he said that he thought it was morally wrong for people to become pregnant and therefore women should have this IUD. So keep in mind, women, that you know we're talking about these different forms of contraception. Just you know, remember that those who create these forms of birth control aren't necessarily thinking about our well-being. So yeah, and, and and something interesting that I've seen as I've been researching this a lot is either the person is doing this for eugenics reason, like um that doctor, I don't remember his name. What was his name again? Oh, that is a he great question. Shield. But why she does that, you know, we all know this. I think we all by this point know the story of Margaret Sanger, totally did it for eugenics. But if it's not eugenics, it's always a man doing it for monetary reasons to make money. So like, you have to think about that. Like when we're talking about contraception is look back at the history, look at why people created forms of contraception. Yes, there are some forms of contraception that might've been started with, you know, a good intent, but most of the time it was taken and monopolized on. And that's why we still have things like, what is it called? The Dawkin Shield? Dawkin Shield. Dawkin Shield, you know, the, the, you know, it stayed for so long, even after killing so many women, because Mm -hmm. people were making money off of it. And you will still find it in third world countries because people were making money off of it. And we have to think about that. Are they doing it for women's health? Are they doing it to solve overpopulation? Or are they doing it 
for monetary gain or for eugenics reasons. So, mm-hmm. and that was so a great I'm, question. Yeah. I love that uh, side note. Um, so the creator of that was Hugh J. Davis and Erwin Lenner. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can actually read about this on a website called embryo.asu.edu. Um, there's a project called the Embryo Project, and they talk about the history of this IUD. And so actually, as these physicians began to make a lot of money off the IUD, they outsourced it to a chapstick uh, manufacturer That's where they right. no longer made the IUD sterile, which it has to be sterile in order to yeah, prevent infection. Because that costs too much money for them. So they skip the sterilization <laughs> process. Think about that. Think, I mean, just really think about that. They are skipping literally the part that will make it safe to put inside of you. I mean, that's why it's called an IUD, right? It's the, what is it? That stands for interuterine device, interuterine device. Like mm-hmm. just think about that for a second. Like, yeah, absolutely. Wow. So, mm-hmm. you know, the newer IUDs, they are not as unsafe as the Belkin shield. Mm-hmm. That was so damaging yeah. to women that women in their twenties permanently lost their fertility. Some even died from complications. Um, people say it is impossible to conceive with an IUD, which by the way is incorrect because it can be an abortifacient form because um, ovulation can still occur, conception can still occur. One of the reasons we know this is true is because in the history of the Delkin Shield, um, there were women that reported, well, their physicians would report that they had septic abortions, which I think what they were trying to say is really septic miscarriage, because I don't think that they intended to have an abortion, right. but it was like the baby was conceived while the mom still had the Delkin shield in her uterus. And then the pregnancy became septic. And in some cases, both the mom and baby died. So yeah. just going to put that in the back of your head. That's not nearly as common with yes. uh, these newer IUDs are smaller. They're a different shape. They're like a T-shape now versus the Delta mm-hmm. Shield actually looks like a kind of like a bug. Like it was mm-hmm. a circle and it had like points coming out of the side of it. You um, have to know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and, anyway. and just as a side note to everyone listening, for all these resources that we talk about, we link them on our website, which you can find in the show notes. And there's a page on our website called resources, where we link all the resources that we read from and that we take from. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, and also just want to thank all our listeners for listening with the amount of support that we got. And the first, with the first episode was just simply amazing and really, really was encouraging because I think this is a topic that's hard to take on. It's hard to be like, oh yes, let's just start, you know, talking about contraception and, you know, lose, you know, lose friends and lose followers, you know? Um, but, um, you guys have truly blessed us and um, we are happy to be talking about this and we just want to hear all the questions and address everything. And even if you have a story, we'd love to have you on, but just to continue back on track, we were talking about IUDs and then what's the next form. Great question. Another very common form of contraception is hormonal birth control, which understand that's like a major heading and we're going to go to some subheadings. So Hormonal contraception can be in many different forms. So some common forms include the pill, which is probably one of the most famous forms of contraception Mm -hmm. um, that's been around um, since like the early to mid 1900s. There is an injection called Depo-Provera. There are um, rod implants that you can have implanted into your arm, vaginal ring, Um, and so how does the rod implant work? Great question. So it looks like, um, 
what's even a good way to describe this? It kind of looks like a, a rod or a stick, kind of that length. It's kind of skinny, but a physician or a nurse practitioner can have it implanted into your arm and it's releasing hormones into okay. your body. Okay. So there have been some complications with, so there are stories, like I mentioned with the IUD having some complications. There are times the IUD will leave the uterus and go into the abdominal cavity and cause complications, require surgery. This um, hormonal rod form of contraception can also leave your arm and it can travel to different places in your body. Can be very dangerous when that happens. Um, healthcare providers say that that's rare, but it does happen. So just be aware of that. Um, another form of hormonal contraception is the patch. It's a sticker essentially that you put on um, your arm or wherever your healthcare provider tells you to. Um, if you've ever seen, um, well, I guess I'm not sure not everybody works in healthcare, but when my patients are going through um, nicotine withdrawal, we have nicotine patches. So it's it's not the same medication, obviously, but it's a similar effect where it's like a, a sticker on your skin mm-hmm. um, that releases hormones. Okay. So that would be hormonal contraceptives. And those typically now understand there are different um, dosages and different combinations of hormones. Mm-hmm. But what was most common is combination form hormonal contraception, which is going to be estrogen and progesterone. And they are synthetic hormones. They're not natural. They are, you know, made in a lab and given to your body. Um, some forms of hormonal contraception are estrogen only. Um, so, but we want to let you know that as far as we are aware, we believe that these are each, you know, possibly abortifacient forms. And the reason for that is going back to last episode, we talked about the three mechanisms, right? So the first mechanism is to thicken cervical mucus to impede sperm, to not make it to an egg. Um, the next mechanism is to reduce ovulation. So you would not be ovulating as often, but it wouldn't be stopped completely. And just in case you do ovulate, there's mechanism number three, which is to thin the uterine lining, also known as your endometrium. Mm -hmm. And that way, if conception occurs, remember that we talked about uterine anatomy, your conception actually occurs within the fallopian tubes where sperm meets an egg. And then that child, after being conceived about five days after will go to implant into the uterine lining. But if you're on hormonal contraception, And if it's working correctly and it is thinning your endometrium enough, then your endometrium will not be thick enough to promote uh, an optimal environment for the child to survive. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, it's also very challenging for physicians and scientists to study how often that happens. Um, But it just understand that hormonal forms of contraception are not creating hospitable environment for life and it can be dangerous for a child. So we've gone through IUDs, we've gone through hormonal contraception. Um, let's move next into barrier methods. Mm-hmm. So that would include, um, condoms or, um, there are, there's a different term for it, but basically there's like a, like a female condom. Um, there is spermicide. Some people use, which kills sperm. So just so we're clear on a couple things. So spermicide, condoms, female um, protection devices that are not hormonal, those are not considered abortifacients as far as we're aware. Um, so like the, you know, condoms and female uh, protective devices like that are not abortifacient. Spermicide, I have wondered, I haven't done thorough study of, um, I just wonder if, if you damage sperm, is that, is it possible that a damaged sperm could still make it to an egg and then cause a complication mm-hmm. later? I don't know, but that's just a thought I've had before. Put that in your head as well. Well, that's um, and definitely then- something we'll have to get like a doctor or someone on to talk through us through, which yeah. is something just to make a note of that we will be doing. And we'll talk about that a little, a little more later on the episode about some, um, episodes that we will be doing regarding healthcare and taking the pill with 
like doctors. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, thank you for going over each of those forms. And just to let everyone know, we're going to be doing episodes on each form specifically and um, the um, its own history, different Mm -hmm. stories that women have, even stories that you guys may call in with. We're going to be talking about those stories, talking about how it affects people's health. We also understand that a lot of of women um, are on contraception, not because, oh, you know, they just, you guys just want to go have sex or something. We understand that you're on it. A lot of people are on it because of health health reasons. Mm And I struggled personally, like my, my, during my teenage years, I still do with, you know, period cramps. Right. And I was, oh, I, you know, every time I went to the doctor always prescribed me, you know, birth control. Right. And, um, and like, of course I always said no every time. And first of all, I just started saying no, because my mom always told me, well, you know, you don't want to, you, you don't want to take that because it's really bad for your health and can cause so many other issues. And we will be getting into that. We'll be talking about, um, um, people who take it for even like PCOS or different things like that. We'll be getting into that on another episode, but we do want to keep that in mind in no way. If you are on birth control for those reasons, are we shaming you in any way? Yeah, but we absolutely. want to make you, we want to help you be aware of what's going on in your body and also help provide alternatives to that. Because believe it or not, there are, there are alternatives and, and a lot of doctors will tell you there aren't alternatives to it. And it's not because they're lying to you. It's because the healthcare system doesn't really teach it. So we're going to be see, we're going to seek out and find doctors that we know personally or, or have heard from to be on here on the podcast, talking with all of us about the true alternatives to, um, to birth control for health reasons. So I just want to let you all know that. And now we're going to really get into the, um, depth of what we're going to be talking about today, which is the general history of the last hundred years of contraception. And we're going to be completely turning it over to Cassidy here because I really, as a Catholic, I really, really, really want to hear the history from a Protestant side. I know as Catholics, we hear all about humana vitae and all of that. It's taught in our churches at least once a year. And I will be chiming in a little bit to tell you all more about that. But I really, really want to hear the Protestant perspective and see if this is something you all have believed forever, or if it's something that, um, that might be new to your, um, to the Protestant church. So go ahead and tell, tell us all of it, Cassidy. Yes. Well, Maya, thank you. I I appreciate that. And you're so right. We would love, um, soon on this podcast to have some experts come on and, and share their knowledge with us. We are very open to that and excited to hear from others as well. Um, just to wrap up, um, the forms of contraception, I just want to note two other ones real quick, if that's okay. Um, So I just want to point out that there's also the fertility awareness method, which is similar to NFP, but different. Um, A lot of Protestants use this form where like they, women will track their cycle and see when they're fertile, then they will use a barrier method during the fertile window. Um, And then NFP is, um, you know, being aware of your fertility charting, um, your basal body temperature, which is your temperature first thing in the morning. um, And also your cervical mucus, depending on what type of NFP you're using. That's probably the symptothermal method. Um, so just make you aware of those last two methods, but yes, let's get into talking about the history of contraception in the Protestant church. So if you grew up Protestant, you probably don't know that there was any different history than to be completely in favor of all forms of contraception, no matter what, most likely, unless you're in certain circles where you've heard other things. Um, but I just want to point out that those circles were a little bit more rare. Um, I did not learn about this in like a normal history class. I didn't learn about this in church. Um, I had to do some research of my own. So 
just to start off our little discussion about this, I would like to read a quote from Margaret Sanger just to help us ease our way into what the world was like at the time that uh, modern and culture thought was changing on contraception. Here's what Margaret Sanger had to say. Birth control appeals to the advanced radical because it is calculated to undermine the authority of the Christian churches. I look forward to seeing humanity free someday of the tyranny of Christianity, no less than capitalism. That is wow. from the founder of Planned and, Parenthood. And what year, what, what year do you think she said that around? That's a great question. I don't know the exact year she said it, um, but I know the year her first birth control clinic opened was 1916. So I'm sure around that time was when she was wow. thinking thoughts like that. So it's been quite a while since 1916. However, right about that time in history, big changes were happening. So let's take a slight review kind of way back um, to about the year 300 AD, um, because we need to hear what was the common view of contraception and how has it changed over time? So at the first council of Nicaea, it was stated, if anyone in sound health has castrated himself, it behooves that such a one, if enrolled among the clergy, should cease from his ministry. So it was thought among the clergy at that time, you know, of Christian church leaders, that if you were doing something to intentionally cause yourself to be infertile, that that was reason enough for you to not be a part of ministry any longer. So that was kind of the view of birth. It's kind of like excommunicated in a way for like Catholic and Catholic lingo. Maybe to me, it sounds like in this statement, it's more like you don't get to be a leader. So maybe it's oh, like you okay. can be in the church, so but you don't talking. get to be a leader. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then St. Augustine had these two interesting thoughts about contraception that I think Protestants might find kind of revealing. Augustine said, they are unwilling to have children on whose account alone marriages are made. How is it then that you are not those prohibiting marriage as the apostle predicted of you so long ago in First Timothy 4 verses 1 through 4, when you try to make from, take from marriage what marriage is? When this is taken away, husbands are shameful lovers. Wives are harlots, bridal chambers are brothels, fathers-in-laws, uh, fathers-in-law are pimps. Those who do this, although they are called husband and wife, are not, nor do they retain any reality of marriage, but with a respectable name, cover shame. Yeah. Augustine was very against contraception, if you can tell, um, but that's not something you ever hear. If you hear a nice quote from Augustine, um, and the same from the reformers. If we hear a quote from the reformers, we don't ever hear their thoughts on contraception. I think this is why, because they make really direct statements. Let's go over a couple more of those. So I have another from Augustine. Sexual intercourse, even with a lawful wife, is unlawful, un- or excuse me, unlawful and shameful if the offspring of children is prevented. This is what Oman, the son of Judah, did. And on that account, God put him to death. Another early church leader, John Calvin, Uh, A lot, there are many Protestants who are Calvinists. They hold very tightly to the beliefs of John Calvin and what he thought about predestination and election. So would those, I would just want to encourage my Calvinist friends, you know, a lot of my friends who believe uh, like the, um, the theology of John Calvin believe it very passionately and very deeply. So I'd like to ask you, would you agree with Calvin on this statement that he made? When a woman in some way drives away the seed out of the womb through AIDS, then this is rightly seen as an unforgivable crime. Onan was guilty of a similar crime by defiling the earth with his seed. 
And that was John Calvin's commentary on Onan, written in 1554. So as you can see, that's not at all what modern Protestant leaders would state, but the change has come rather recently um, in the last 100 years, actually, there have been some drastic alterations in the way our modern Protestant church views children, family, fertility, conception, um, birth control, all the above have actually been changed very drastically. And the way that Protestant leaders viewed the scriptures on this issue was actually changed. So there was an alteration from interpreting the Bible as to be seen as you know, to be led by the scriptures in a way that um, promoted being open to life and open to God's plan for a family. And it was altered to then become approving of the culture. So they didn't try to alter the Bible itself, but altered the way they read it, if that makes sense. Right. Right. And something we were talking about earlier was you were telling me, and maybe you're about to get into this, but you were telling me about a Protestant man, an evangelical man who was actually very against birth control and sought to make it illegal in the United States and was successful in some ways. But you were actually saying like how it was actually, in fact, the Catholics who weren't really doing anything about it. And I think we touched on this in the last episode is, you know, the person who created the abortion, uh, the contraception pill was a Catholic. And, and what Cassidy had said in the episode was he probably went to a church where they didn't talk about it on the pulpit. It's because Catholics were silent. But what Cassidy was telling me was what in the 1950s or 1960s, this man was fighting, and he was an evangelical to make contraception illegal. And I, I had read, I think, a quote from him about how he had went to New York City and like saw all these people that were, um, that were just like, just really like slutty, I guess is what he was saying. And like, and I, I, I don't know, maybe you have the quote, but basically he, that's why he decided like, I want to make, you know, like, I want to make sure that people cannot just, you know, just, I, I don't, you probably have degrade their their bodies and degrade their bodies yeah and so he sought to make abortion and sorry abortion oh that too yeah that too you could tell that that's my focus but i mean contraception illegal and this was an evangelical man it was actually Mm -hmm. catholics who weren't really saying that much about it and um and and i think this is also very great time for a lot of people is because people didn't quite know what exactly the church taught exactly until Humana Vitae came out and still they didn't really know and no one's really read Humana Vitae but you know that's such an interesting thing to think about is it wasn't even a hundred years ago it wasn't even you know what is it like what did you say like Uh, so yeah in the last like hundred years is where Mm -hmm. like that drastic change has come so Anthony Comstock himself he lived like uh late 1800s okay late 1800s okay Mm -hmm. got the years wrong (laughs) oh you're good no problem there's you know a lot of important figures from that time so Mm -hmm. um just like you mentioned um Anthony Comstock came onto this scene right at a time what's so interesting is this man was an activist mm-hmm. and he was very passionate he was a strong christian um when i read about anthony comstock there's a book called godly seed by alan carlson who is a protestant historian he talks about anthony comstock in his book uh, as being a man with really genuine faith who really loved god and wanted to honor him in his life um so anthony comstock became really inspired uh 
first in a sad way because he like Maya mentioned he saw some really sad things I think he had a friend I believe that got exposed to porn and then it Mm -hmm. it just destroyed their life just um he watched that he said what would happen is they'd have one say magazine or something of pornography and it would ruin and destroy one person's life and then they'd pass that magazine on to another person and ruin and destroy another person's life with um the impurity and the addictions that could flow from that and so he became very passionately against three things pornography abortion and birth control and that was his focus and it's so odd to me i was just telling maya earlier that today i was doing some pro-life activism and i got kicked out of an event after being there for 20 minutes when i was trying to let people know that in the state of michigan planned parenthood's trying to legalize abortion to the moment of birth and so there's so much pushback that i could only be there 20 minutes versus back at this time in history with anthony comstock most people supported him the culture at large supported his anti-contraceptive, uh, anti-contraceptive and his anti-porn, anti-abortion stances, yeah. which can you even imagine that? Can you imagine being taking yeah. such a controversial stance and everyone's like, woo, you go. That's yeah. um, in some ways it, what he was getting. Yeah. And I think that just really gives perspective to the fact that this is not just, oh, like a Catholic issue. And so I think mm-hmm. my question now is like, what happened? What yeah. caused the Protestant church, you know, to, um, to really, um, to really just flip to be completely, you know, pro, um, pro contraception, pro birth control. And mm-hmm. I kind I touched on the Catholic side of things last week, you know, uh, last episode. Um, but what happened to just this complete mind shift and this complete, like, you can't even question contraception without getting backlash. What a great question. Yeah. Um, I have a quote, um, from Flan Kempel, who is a demographic historian. He says, even the coming of the Reformation and all it represented in the way of challenge to the dogmas of the medieval Catholic Church had no apparent influence on the Christian doctrine concerning birth control. Protestants were as much in agreement on this point as they were in disagreement about others. So the Reformation actually did not alter any um, view at that, any theological view on contraception at the time. As a matter of fact, um, let's see here. I have a quote from Dr. Alan Carlson's book, Godly Seed. He says, addressing the celibate Teutonic Knights, I'm not sure how pronounce that, the reformer, Martin Luther, also emphasized Genesis 2.18. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper who shall be with him. Setting himself squarely against the papacy and the church councils here, Luther just declared, Whoever would be a true Christian must grant that this saying of God is true and believe that God was not drunk when he spoke these words and instituted marriage, except among those rare persons, not more than one in a thousand, Luther said at one point, who received true um, celibacy as a special gift from God, marriage and procreation were divinely ordained. As he wrote, For it is not a matter of free choice or decision, but a natural and necessary thing that whatever it, whatever is a man must have a woman and whatever is a woman must have a man. And that's from page eight of Godly Seed. So Martin Luther, you know, he's being a rebel against the Catholic church, but he's saying um, part of his, he was a monk um, before becoming the rebel he's known for being Mm -hmm. that um, he, when he's attacking celibacy within the Catholic clergy. He's saying that, you know, part of God's design is 
for marriage. And Martin Luther has this theory that in his words, a lot of Protestant theologians, theologians probably wouldn't even agree with this. He says, not more than one in a thousand should be single. So like he really is very pro-marriage and he's saying, if, you know, marriage is so important in the eyes of God, you know, we see the importance of masculinity and femininity being together. Luther also opposes contraception and just yeah. is pointing out the importance of being open to life, like your quote from the last week. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just such an, that's something to really focus on is, you know, why did Luther, you know, why, you know, being against contraception and like abortion was at the very core of why Luther started the Reformation, like Cassidy was saying. And it was because he believed, you know, as Genesis says, be fruitful, as God tells us, be fruitful and multiply, be, um, be, uh, you know, like procreate. And we see, you can look up anywhere, you know, just look up on the internet, like quotes from Luther on contraception. He, oh, and I said one last, last episode, like he's always saying, you know, like you, you know, that is the fullness of, of our creation and why we were created. And just think about, you know, like we were created for relation. We read that in Genesis from Cassidy's quote that she just read, you know, we were made Imago Dei, which, you know, ultimately means, you know, we are made for relation. We are made to love God and be in unity with him. Right. And the fullness of that, as we read in the scriptures is marriage and it's procreation because a child is a manifestation of love and and so it's just really really interesting to think about that this is at the very core at the very like this is not just oh another issue this is at the very core of you know of being a catholic for me and of being a protestant for you of who we are as human beings as made in the image and likeness of god is yeah is is procreation it's having children and it's the most beautiful thing we can do and um and yeah so just wanted to kind of point that out. Absolutely. And that's, I think it's important for people to remember too, what the circumstances were like during the time of the Reformation. To be honest, growing up, I thought at the time of the Reformation, that must've been a nice year, you know, a good culture, society was nice. No, no, the society was terrible. There were brothels. There were lots of prostitutes. Um, the many times, like some of the priests were going to see the prostitutes. Um, so Luther was observing extreme moral decay. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he was probably seeing, or I should say, he was probably hearing of some of those early forms of contraception because Mm -hmm. they would want to use those in brothels that he probably had heard of abortion too. So just keep in mind, Protestants, you know, Luther was not in some ideal time bubble and he's making Mm -hmm. these statements about how God created marriage and family. And Luther was very, very pro-child and believed in the importance of being open to life so luther wasn't saying that in a time in history when that was easy and there were no problems it was a very broken society and he probably saw the very the direct effects of what happens when you have contraception even you know just like you know not so great forms of contraception that you know probably weren't as effective as they are now you know um he saw what that cause and he probably saw you know as Cassidy was talking about last week or sorry I keep saying last week but last episode was you know when when you when there's contraception there's abortion there's pornography there's infidelity there's all of these things and he was probably seeing that and that's why he was so adamantly speaking out against contraception and why he would not allow it within his church Mm. 
that's a good point. And he was very loud about it, wasn't he? Martin Luther. He was very loud about it. <laughs> and Martin Luther was upset about something people knew and people Martin knew Luther got upset about contraception. So um I started to have kind of a shift in the culture. So, you know, Luther and let's see here, I gave you a quote from Calvin, which Calvin's quote was back from about 1554. So we're gonna go way forward a minute here mm-hmm. to about the year 1870. Um, well, prior to telling you about that, though, I want to tell you a quote from Thomas Malthus from the year 1826. He said, all children born beyond what would be required to keep up the population to a desired level must necessarily perish. Therefore, we should facilitate the operations of nature in producing this morality. So Malthus believed in the importance of population control. And this was becoming more widely known and more common um, in the 1800s. So a couple of years later, 1873, Anthony Comstock began his career. He had a group called the New York Society for the, Sus- the Suppression of Vice. This is an organization founded by Anthony Comstock, a young evangelical who was opposed to pornography, abortion, birth control, like we talked about. He saw abortion and birth control and obscene literature as all connected. He believed if one was accepted, the others were not far off. Mm. He felt that one, one vice led to the other. He believed abortion, porn, and birth control were all the work of the culture. So uh, Dr. Alan Carlson commented in an interview on issues, et cetera, and said, I think he, Anthony Comstock, had a fundamental insight that once the sexual act was stripped of a certain sacredness, once it was stripped of a purpose that was divinely ordained for procreation, once the sexual act no longer had its focus or even its purpose, primar- uh, primarily, uh, sorry, primary purpose, the creation of children, the temptation to move towards these other vices was simply overwhelming. Right. Wow. I really like that's really well said because you think about it when you when you strip sex of its sacredness, even if it's just one part of that procreation, not the unity, you you strip it of sacredness, you strip it of its goodness. And so that 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 quote said it exactly as I would say, it. you know, and it opens a door to pornography. It opens a door to being um, to to be to infidelity. It opens a door to um it opens the door to killing children because they are not in your plan. And if children are not in your plan, then what's going to stop you from killing a child? Mm, yeah, very true. So at the time, evangelicals, Protestants, and Catholics all supported Anthony Comstock 100%. Anthony Comstock did not have critics. If you post something pro-life online, you'll have a picture of a baby and said, I like babies. You could get people mad at you. <laughs> so, but nowadays, back um, in Anthony Comstock's time, so this had, was 18 like 80s i think yeah about 1880s at that point okay. so just to remind you at one time our culture was different and there were more people supporting um this view of possibly even being against contraception so yeah. a couple of statistics not be needed what's that our podcast would not be needed exactly but at the same time though like as much as that's true i think one of the reasons why we end up in a place like we're in right now where we're having our podcast while we're fighting 2,363 abortions occurring daily. Mm-hmm. It's because people sometimes have a belief and they don't know how to defend it. And they and so just, they yeah, exactly. come and attack it. People like Planned Parenthood come and they try to indoctrinate people. And, you know, specifically the Protestant church has little to no response and little to no um, 
pushback of their own of giving people like a biblical view of sexuality and understanding that human life is valuable from the moment of conception and then in comes these cultural lies and they take over so and, although it's yeah and that's exactly what we learned from like bernard nathanson when he tells us about his strategies is he would target the christians and specifically the catholic like bishops and the catholic hierarchy and he would teach them and tell them you know like and they'd also like you know take away all their funding from user donors through their donors too, but they would tell them that, you know, you could be personally pro-life, you know, this still applies to contraception. You can be still be personally pro-life, but you don't have to say anything about it. Right. And then no one knows what to say about it because mm-hmm. guess what? Now our, now our Catholic hierarchy, now our, now our priests, now, you know, our pastors are not teaching about it from the pulpit. Now, no one knows how to talk about it. No, and now everyone's ashamed to talk about it. And now, you know, and, and no one knows how to defend it. And so when you're mm-hmm. in that situation, when you are tempted with lust, you're like, well, no one's, no one's really told me it. Otherwise, like, why can I not, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, and that is such a, such a good, good, good point, but let's let you finish up. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love your thought. That's great. Um, so, uh, there's a great documentary called birth control. How did we get here? Highly recommend watching this. It was produced by Kevin Peoples. Um, in that film, they share a couple of statistics in the year 1874, 5.2 living children were amongst evangelical clergymen in Europe. That's an approximation. Um, and amongst Lutheran churches in the year 1890, 6.5 living children was common. So we're just trying to like bring you into what the culture was like at that time. But then in 1879, Margaret Sanger was born. Um, so let's give you a little background on who this woman was. Now, some of you might be like Margaret Sanger historians at this point, but others of you may not have heard of her before this podcast. So I'm going to go with that approach. Like you've never heard of her. So mm-hmm. Margaret Sanger was a nursing student when she started to have some, uh, she had kind of an activating event that put her like made her very passionate and took her from someone with radical ideas in her mind to someone who was very active and going to go fight for what she believed, even though it was extremely detrimental. So she once had a patient who was suffering complications after a self-induced abortion. And she responded about this particular case. I threw my nursing bag in the corner and announced that I would never take another case until I had made it possible for working women in America to have the knowledge to control birth. So let's bring ourselves into that perspective. Pretend you're Margaret Sanger, you're at your nursing clinical, and today you are assigned a patient, and this patient is here for abortion complications because she self-induced an abortion. Margaret Sanger looks at the suffering of this mother, and sadly, she completely overlooks the fact that there was another person who also suffered, the child. She does not even note the suffering of the child who was destroyed in that abortion. We can look at post-abortive women and we can make the mistake of not being compassionate. Some poor life people do that. So we need to, there's one thing we can look at Margaret Sanger and say, it is good to look at a post-abortive woman and have compassion for her and say, wow, that looks so painful and awful. I'm so sorry you went through that. That looks so painful. Um, However, Margaret Sanger had a wrong response. She decided now the solution to my patient's suffering and how I'm going to resolve this crisis I just observed is going to be by teaching people to control their birth. So she really believed the more control a person had over their fertility, the better their life would be, the more liberated, the more free they would be. 
So that's something I've really spent some time thinking about myself as a nursing assistant. When I observe my patient suffering, and this can go for anyone, not just a nursing assistant, when you are observing the suffering of another person, are you quick to embrace something that is unbiblical? Like, oh, well, you know, the world's just terrible and, you know, um, there's no hope for any of us. That's not true. That's not biblical. There is hope for us. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ, there is hope for you. There's hope beyond the grave. There's hope beyond our suffering and our sorrow. Um, we have to turn to Christ in our suffering. We have to turn to the Lord when we're looking at people who are hurting, when we're seeing post-abortive women, when we're seeing a culture that's very sexually impure. We don't look and say, yep, let's just make sure there are less children in the world. That's the solution. We look and we can have compassion upon post-abortive women and, you know, really love them and really nurture them and, and remember how severe the symptoms of depression, PTSD, anxiety can be after an abortion and be gentle with her, treat her with respect and love. And also remember, abortion is never the answer to any crisis at all. And also, I am here to tell you something radical. Contraception is not the solution. Margaret Sanger, when she was standing there that day with her patient and she said, forget my nursing career, I'm throwing my nursing bag in the corner. She was wrong when she thought that contraception was the answer. Contraception was not the answer for that patient, and it wasn't the answer for the Protestant church, the Catholic church, or for the culture at large. Margaret Sanger had a wrong conclusion. However, amen. If you and, heard <laughs> and that, ladies, is Cassidy's answer to the end of last episode. Or <laughs> was it was, are you against all forms of contraception? And your answer is... I am. I am against all forms of contraception. And I think if you'll travel with me a little bit more into the history of this, you can see part of why I've come to this conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I promise that in coming to this conclusion, I'm not just saying, please get on our band bandwagon without thinking. Because mm -hmm. to be honest, if I was going to get on a bandwagon without thinking, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way towards those who think this, but like I would be pro contraception if I wasn't going to think, especially because of the conversations I had with fellow Protestants. Mm -hmm. I was not given the impression that there was room for my questions or my thoughts or my worries about contraception. So if I was going to not think, if I was going to drown my mind and just go with the flow, I would be pro contraception. Mm -hmm. But because I've asked some really hard questions and because I've tried to you know, envision myself right there with Margaret Sanger in this moment when she's seeing a suffering patient. Like, is that really the answer? Is abortion the answer? Is birth control the answer? You know, I've sat and really wrestled with those questions. And I hope that you'll take a moment to wrestle too. Mm -hmm. I hope, come and wrestle with us through this question. Is contraception the answer? Today, you are a nursing student right now with Margaret Sanger. Mm -hmm. And you are there in that room with that abortion patient who um, inflicted that self-harm upon herself and upon her child. You know, do you believe right now that the solution to her suffering is contraception or do you believe there could be something else? So I want to just put that in the back of your head. Yeah. We'll kind that's of such, just such a powerful question because I mean, going back to what we were just talking about, how contraception paves the way. And like I said, last episode, I believe it all goes back to the sexual revolution. I believe it all goes back to contraception. I believe we get a right rid of contraception. You're going to get rid of abortion and you're going to get rid of uh, pornography and infidelity I will guarantee it I will 100% guarantee it because when you have a culture that brings sacredness back to sex that brings sacredness and beauty back to our world you will not have a culture of of pornography you will not have a culture that loves abortion you will not have a culture that degrades women and men and degrades children and you won't have a culture that is falling apart 
by the pieces. I mean, um, and I truly believe, you know, like in, in this shift, this shift to our churches, including Catholic churches, mind you, accepting, accepting contraception. Cassidy has been telling us about where did the shift come from? Why did it happen? It happened because people didn't want Christianity anymore. Like Margaret Sanger said, because when you take uh, sacredness away from sex, you take away Christianity, the importance of Christianity. You take away the importance of why we're Christian. You take away the importance of Christ because you're taking away sacredness from society. And I don't think we can emphasize that enough. And, and like Cassidy said, come and wrestle with us because honestly, I wanted to spend this episode listening to Cassidy and what all her thoughts on this, because I don't know all the answers. And I am here wrestling with the truth, discovering the truth, because I want to know the truth. I want to know why things happen. I want to know what I want to know the truth. I want to know God. And the only way that we will know God is by wrestling. It was by wrestling with the devil. It's by wrestling with hard truth. It's by wrestling with with hard lies too it's by it's by you know saying realizing you know like i have been lied to by my society i have been lied to by my church i have been lied to by the people i trust the most about this because they have been lied to too and and i think that's just something we have to realize is that is that this shift came because they hated us they hated christians they hated, they hated Catholicism and the devil knows that when he destroys a family, when he just takes a child out of the picture, when he takes a self-sacrifice out of the picture, you destroy marriage and you destroy the family, which is the, the greatest unity in the world as a family. It images the Holy Trinity, father, son, pouring love into each other that creates the Holy Spirit. When you destroy the family, you take away Christianity and and yeah, so quickly, we don't have too much time left and we will follow up in the next episode with the rest of this. We keep, keep like not getting to say everything we want to say. I want to hear about what your thought, like just the rest of um, kind of summed up some thoughts on, um, on why you think this shift came, like how this shift really came about. And I know we're at the Margaret Singer point and she started like strategizing to get this in, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really interesting points you're making too about the sacredness of marriage and sacredness of sexuality because like you read margaret sanger's writing she has a lot of inappropriate writing so if you if you want to sit and discern that that's one thing but i will tell you she's she just writes a lot of inappropriate things but she does talk a lot about how she believes women should be their own god in their sexuality so it is void of god what she is promoting just to let it you know whatever your view of contraception the philosophy of margaret sanger is anti-christian and so this is not something that came from people that loved the Lord. Let's just keep that in the back of our minds. So to kind of continue our conversation about what was happening, you know, we're talking about Margaret Sanger. Something in particular was going on. Margaret Sanger made the Roman Catholic Church her enemy and took the approach of pretending that the Protestant Church was already on her side. She ignored the Protestants who were opposed to contraception. Sanger changed the terms of debate as Protestant scholar Alan Carlson said, and went off on an anti-Catholic trend that the modern culture had at the time and used that for her ends to promote birth control. So there were some Protestant groups that were going anti-Catholic that wasn't quite as common a little bit more previously 
in history where Protestants and Catholics knew their differences, but maybe didn't have quite an anti-feel against each other. Um, there was kind of a new wind in that part of history where there was some there were some Protestant groups that were anti-Catholic. So Margaret Sanger decided, I will take that little trend of culture and I will tie it into the birth control debate. So just disregarding people like Anthony Comstock, who she probably hated, I have no idea, but I would guess, um, who was an evangelical who is fighting to make contraception illegal. Okay, let's just say that. All you Protestants listening in, there was a Protestant named Anthony Comstock, and his goal was for all contraception to be illegal. And so and he even, had a lot of support on that too. Yes, lots of support. And he didn't even want people to have pamphlets talking about contraception. None of it. Mm. And that was so margaret sanger wanted to dupe people into believing it was a catholic only issue when in fact the most actively anti-contraception people at the time in the 1870s were in fact protestant evangelicals mm -hmm. so um there is a really interesting quote here um for most contemporary americans uh, contentious questions about birth control are considered a particular Catholic problem. With the use of contraceptives at some point being nearly universal among fertile adults and quite common amongst teenagers as well, and with birth control enjoying the blessing of state and federal government as well as, uh, as the alternative to both unwanted births and abortion, only a minority of especially devout Catholics seem to be left to puzzle occasionally over the issue. Most forgotten is the fact that as recently as 100 years ago, it was American evangelical Protestants who wanted, or sorry, who waged the most aggressive and effective campaigns against the practice of birth control within the United States. Wow. Roman Catholics quietly applauded on the sidelines. It was evangelicals uh, starting in 1873, successfully who built a web of federal and state laws that equated contraception with abortion suppressed the spread of birth control information and devices, and even criminalized the use of contraception, contraceptives. It was evangelicals who attempted to jail early 20th century birth control crusaders, such as Margaret Sanger. All the same, by 1973, the year the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the abortion laws of all 50 states, American evangelical leaders had not only given a blessing to birth control, many also welcomed the court's decision in Roe v. Wade, as a blow for religious liberty, Dr. Alan Carlson. Wow. How horrific is that? Wow. You know, I hope that as you're listening in, that you're hearing the change of the culture. You know, there really were Protestants at that time, like a, a large number, who, as they were making that agreement to accept contraception, they were also being okay with, with abortion. So if you think those two are just way far separated, I want you to know that there was a period of time of massive compromise in the Protestant church of being like, you know what, you know, right, regardless of where you personally stand right now on the issue of contraception, I want to remind you, there was a time that when this was all flooding into the culture and society, Protestants decided both contraception and abortion were okay. And they couldn't decide if the fetus had a soul. And they're like, okay, therefore we're going to kill you. It's fine. So there was serious um, compromise that was occurring. It's so important for us to be able to look back and see some of these alterations that were occurring. Um, contraception is an issue that has mattered to evangelicals. I just want you to know as you're listening, if you're an evangelical that this matters to, you're not the only one. You probably feel like you are. 
but you're not. You've heard pro-birth control sermons. Maybe you're like me, you have gotten that weird social treatment because you are not going with the pro-contraception flow. But there's a reason that that's in your heart. And I think part of it is because there is like this passion in some of us to know what is true, no matter what has been normal around us. We have a sense that something is off. Yeah. And I think there's just a deep yearning of the heart. And I think it just, I think, is there any other notes you want to give on during this podcast before we end off this pod episode? Sure. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Why don't I like briefly run over? I kind of gave a rundown of Mark Sanger. Um, one thing that's really key for Protestants to understand is that the church only came to agree to and accept birth control little by little. It wasn't a a giant leap. It was one little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. I urge you, regardless of your thoughts on contraception, to study the Lambeth conferences. These were conferences of clergy. They would come together and have discussions about cultural issues and decide how they felt the church should respond. So in 1908, there was the fifth Lambeth conference, which urged people not to use birth control. Um, it was stated this, the conference regards with alarm, the growing practice of artificial restriction of the family and earnestly calls upon all Christian people to discontinuance the use of all artificial means of restriction as demoralizing to character and hostile to national welfare. This is revolution or sorry, resolution 41 at the fifth Lambeth conference of 1908. Um, it was stated by a historian, Lambeth was a meeting of evangelical, or sorry, excuse me, and Anglican bishops from around the globe that would meet at Lambeth every 10 years and would deal with issues of doctrine and social policy. If the issue of birth control came up, the Lambeth Conference would give a firm opposition to it. But of course, culture was changing. 1916, Margaret Sanger's back alley abortion, or sorry, not back alley abortion. We always hear that term, back alley mm-hmm. abortion. There was a back alley birth control clinic open mm-hmm. in 1916. It was illegal and it was shut down. Yeah. In 1920, there was another Lambeth conference um, and they had a long statement. They said, this conference, while declining to lay down rules, which will meet the needs of every abnormal case, regards with grave concern the spread in modern society of theories and practices hostile to the family. We utter an empathetic warning against the use of unnatural means for the avoidance of conception, together with grave dangers, physical, moral, and religious, thereby incurred and against the evils with which the extensions of such use threatens the race. In opposition to the teaching which, under the nature of science and religion, encourages married people in the deliberate civilization of sexual union as an end in itself. We said vastly uphold what must always be regarded as the government or sorry, the governing considerations of Christian marriage. One is the primary purpose for which marriage exists, namely the continuation of the race through the gift of the heritage of children. The other is of is the paramount importance in married life of deliberate and thoughtful self-control. We resolutely We desire solemnly to commend what we have said to Christian people and all who will hear. Um, And let's see here. So it was very clear. We utter an empathetic warning against the use of unnatural means for the avoidance of conception. They're saying, do not use any form of contraception that is unnatural. So they were not necessarily condemning, like, say, NFP, but they were saying, do not take the birth control pill. Do not have an IUD. Yeah, that's just such an interesting thing to like really hear. And I definitely, yeah, would encourage everyone to look into that. Definitely we'll post it on a resource page as well if it's not already there. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm, absolutely. In 1921, the American Birth Control League was founded. Um, and the main goal of this group was to legalize unrestricted abortion. Who do you think was behind that? Of course, Margaret Sanger. Um, in 1929, the National Committee on Federal Legislation for Birth Control was also founded by Margaret Sanger. So she was just like, let's go find every single in avenue we can have. Yeah. Um, and so. Let's yeah. See. And I'm thinking like, I think like in the next episode, maybe we can pick up from where we're leaving off just like, like, okay. So we're at this point where we see, okay, Protestants did not support this, you know, even, you know, when Margaret Singer was around what, you know, and so, I mean, just think about that. And, and I think in the next episode, we'll cover like the rest of that from, from what is that 1929 right now yeah like in the 1920s you know 1920s to now like this shift that we've seen along with that we'll talk about the developing forms of contraception and um how they have um and how they're coming about during this time and how they're harming people we'll also cover that uh we'll also be looking a little bit start looking into the healthcare, like uh, contraception being used for healthcare, um, how that, how it began to be, um, start, how it started being used for healthcare, why it began being prescribed for period cramps and for PCOS and different things like that. We'll get into that. And then in following episodes, we'll get some people on to talk about some doctors on to talk about alternatives to that. But I really hope, um, that everyone enjoy this episode. Cassidy, do there any last thoughts before we end off this episode? I know this one's going a bit longer than normal, hopefully, <laughs> um, but hopefully we can sit. We're hope our goal stay under 45 minutes, but you know, I think this one would be a little over an hour. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for listening in. Uh, just let you know, this is only the beginning of the Protestant history on birth control. Yeah. So we're kind of just giving you almost a teaser, like to hear yeah. how the rest of it unfolds. Um, I yeah. think we're a little optimistic to think that we could get it into one episode, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's so true. There are a lot of thorough books. We would definitely recommend you read the book Godly Seed by Alan Carlson. And that's it what is- I love that like Cassidy does y'all is she is like a reader and she does like <laughs> such amazing research and like she knows like all the scientific stuff as well. And I'm just sitting here in awe like wow like I love learning about all of this. I'm like I'm like typing it on my phone and like looking it up as she talks. So yeah, I love it. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, well, thank you so much, Maya. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Um, we're grateful to have you. Please feel free to DM us on Instagram or to contact us through our website. Um, we're here for you listeners. We're thankful that you tune in. Yeah. And on that note, you can also leave voice message as well, which will be linked in the show notes. So if you don't want to type it all out, put in a voice message, send us an email, do something like that. We want to hear your story. We want to answer your questions. We want to talk about it. Even if you, if you even want to get on, on the pod with us and talk about any questions that you have, or talk about your story or testify to what, to what your thoughts are. We want to hear it. We want to give you a voice. We want to talk about it because we're all wrestling for the truth. So thank you all for joining in on this episode. We will see you in two weeks. Episodes will begin coming out every week, starting mid April, but right now they come out every two weeks. So thank you to everyone. God bless and have a wonderful two weeks.